I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Our Old Testament uh, scripture tells us how life-giving obedience to the laws and commandments of God is. Our psalm enlarges on that theme and tells us the glories and beauty of the law. And then our epistle gives us an example of what happens when we don't follow that print, those precepts and principles and how childish and divisive that appears. And then comes this gospel text. And if we were to take it literal, well, most of us would be blind or have limbs missing. And at first reading, it feels like following the law suddenly isn't good enough. Not only should I not murder, but now you're telling me that anger, insult, or just calling someone an idiot is just as bad. Not only should I not commit adultery, but now you're telling me I shouldn't even have lustful thoughts. And not only should I not divorce, but falling in love with someone who is divorced is also adultery. And you're also telling me that no oath should be necessary. Nothing that clarifies that, okay, finally now I'm telling the truth. Well, that one I sort of get. The others feel more like a guilt trip, especially right after those wonderful, romantic words of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, why don't you go back to those nice blessings? And so what might Jesus be getting at in this text? And how might these words fit into the context of our 21st century lives and culture? I want to read a poem by Emily Dixon that I think might, Dickinson that might open a doorway for us. The poem is called, Tell All the Truth But Tell It Slant. And it comes in couplets, two lines, and each of the two lines holds a specific meaning. It goes like this, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise as lightning to the children's eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. When I was a child, I was terrified of lightning. And when I asked my mother about lightning, she didn't tell me the truth about it. The lightning is the angels taking pictures of you, she said. Well, then what's the thunder, Mom? Oh, that's the angels clapping because the picture turned out. <laughs> I have loved lightning storms ever since. So did she lie to me? Or did she tell the truth slant? I didn't need to hear the truth about how lightning worked. I needed to hear the truth of my fear. And once over my fear, I had lots of time to enlarge the truths of what lightning was. And I never lost my love for lightning or my curiosity about it. And that's how telling the truth slant is. If you're invited to love the truth, you will never lose your curiosity about it, and nor will you ever abandon your quest for it. So what was the greater truth? That I wanted a scientific, rational explanation? 
or that I was terrified. And she answered the truth slant, based on my need and my longing to not be afraid. And perhaps that's the sense of our New Testament scriptures today. And at first blush, it looks like Christ is criticizing the old law. You've heard it said, but I say. And he does that about four times. And it was part of why he was crucified, because you were, the law was sacred. How dare you change it or add to it? But he says in these passages and in the context that he came to fulfill or to complete it, to internalize the law, not to make it an object to measure my self-righteousness. And so to fulfill the law means to appreciate it for what it reflects rather than what it dictates. And there is truth here. But what's the slant? And the journey to this truth, I want to suggest, is always for us circuitous, developmental. It comes slant after slant. And our scripture is telling the truth slant, telling us that there is something more important than scrupulously doing the right and avoiding the wrong. It's not doing away with the right and wrong. It's holding it within a wider frame of asking, what will bring life, curiosity, desire, longing into this situation? And so truth becomes not a baseball bat, constantly trying to create a home run of rightness or exposure of wrongness. Truth is meant to transform the heart. And even in our Old Testament scripture, it doesn't talk about you've got to hide these ideas. The problem happens if you don't hear it in your heart. Last week we heard that it's more like salt that enhances what is already there. Baseball bat truth tends to create a self-righteousness called out by Jesus, especially to the scribes and the Pharisees, but perhaps in this passage to us as well. And so I leave you with a question, what's more important, to be right or to be understood? And perhaps ethics now becomes more a matter of the heart rather than a preoccupation with the current political right idea or a law-induced action. And I want to talk about objectification this morning. Objectification is the act of treating a person or some object, an animal, as a thing. It's part of a dehumanization. When we objectify something, we take the humanity out of it selfishly. And it's much more than just what we hear a lot of, objectification of women, but it does include that. And it's a way of holding anything that is other than us. And Jesus is saying in these lines, what is a crime for a person to do is also a crime for a person to think. And at that level, we constantly need the grace of God. So I think this is an invitation to inner self-awareness, to be aware of your inner thoughts and to move them in the direction of the divine image in you. How do we do that? I've told this story before, but it fits again. Years ago when I was counseling in San Francisco, I was sent for people by a denomination who had all been caught in some kind of sexual addiction. Three men and a woman. 
and they were all stripped of their credential and they had to come and see me as their punishment for uh, once a week for a year. And then we would do an evaluation of whether they could get their credential back again. So obviously I had a captive audience and they weren't that excited to come. And rather than jump right in and talk about the sexual addictions, we had to talk for probably a month, month and a half about what it was like to be forced to come to see this guy and sit with him for an hour every week as a group. And that took about a month before we got down to the place where they got past the punishment, past the legalistic approach to it and began to feel comfortable enough to actually look inside, not only individually but as a group, in my presence. And about six months in, we had done a lot of great work and a lot of wonderful stuff had happened and we had become very open with each other. And I remember my supervisor telling me, you'll know when they're feeling comfortable, when they allow themselves to bring some gentle sexual innuendo into the conversation again. And that did happen. And there was a lot of confession, there was a lot of tears, but there was also laughter and joy and peace and things that defined them more for more than just these addictions, as serious as they were. They were a bright group. Two of them had PhD, two had masters. Two were clergy. The other two were professors in a seminary. Six months in, it felt to me like we had accomplished all that we needed to accomplish, and we'd reached this plateau. And it didn't feel like we had anywhere else to go. And I found myself thinking, but we've got to put in six months more in this sentence. And we enjoyed each other. We liked each other's coffee. We chatted. Uh, we told each other about our lives. But it felt like, okay, let's not just put in time. And I went to my supervisor, Sandra, and I said, Sandra, it feels to me like we're just on a plateau. And I don't know how to move it farther than this. And she said, well, have you asked them if that's how they feel? Well, no, I hadn't thought of that. And when I asked them, yeah. But, you know, we've got six more months, so I went back to Sandra and I told her, yeah, they feel the same way. She said, well, I have a question for you to ask them. Ask them, what is the first thing they think of when they think of something beautiful? And I thought, yeah, okay, that, that's the question that's going to give us six months' worth of work to, and she said, well, give it a try. So I nonchalantly walked in the next time and I said, I've got a question for you today. What's the first thing you think of when you think of something beautiful? And all three men sort of looked at each other and snickered and almost simultaneously said, a woman. <laughs> the woman in the group was absolutely shocked. She said, you've got to be kidding me. That's the first thing you think of? Yeah, what do you guys, what do you think of? She says, I think of a sunset. And the guy said, yeah, sunset's pretty. <laughs> no, you don't get it. She says, when I first gaze at a sunset, the sunset is out there and I'm here. But as I gaze at the sunset, sunset, suddenly the lines between me and the sunset blur. And I become one with the sunset. And when that happens, that's beautiful. Well, one of the gentlemen in the group burst into tears. I have never had that experience. No wonder I objectify women. I see nothing in myself that has anything to do with beauty. I'm all about goodness and truth. And so beauty is something out there that I have to pursue. 
and capture and control and objectify rather than something that is incorporated in the beauty in me sees the beauty in the other within a context of one of those oldest definitions of God as a dance of goodness, truth, and beauty. <clears throat> goodness can become an objectification when I feel like I'm better than you are. Truth can become an objectification when I assume that I'm right and you're wrong. But beauty can become an objectification when it's divorced from goodness and truth. And so the woman in the group went on to explain that goodness without beauty is I'm better than you are. And that makes it an objectification. And that truth without beauty is I'm right, you're wrong. And that beauty without goodness and truth is the fashion industry. <clears throat> and so the discovery of telling truth on slant is that truth must always dance with goodness and beauty. That's what makes it life-giving. This is a dance of the heart, not the mind. This is a dance of self-awareness, not will. This is a dance of divine delight. And so everything that is not motivated by love, by this dance of goodness and truth and beauty, becomes an objectification. We use objects. We don't love them. You cannot love what you objectify, including yourself. And when you only live for self, you objectify yourself. You make yourself the center of your longings and desires. And you seek to satisfy only that self. And this objectification is all around it. We get so used to it that we hardly notice it. And I might suggest that we even make a case for objectification as another word for sin. Objectification in marketing. How are consumers seen as objects of consumption? Objects to manipulate into buying. And we also objectify ourselves when our identity becomes almost exclusively consumer-oriented. We shop until we drop. And take the most obvious and most spoken objectification in our society, the objectification of women. Our marketing and media is full of this objectification. And yet, there is something in that objectification that is inviting us to admire in a different way. The difference between admiration and objectification. Admiration doesn't focus overwhelmingly on utility what the object can do for me. Instead, admiration demonstrates respect for the person as a whole, their personality traits, their skills, their sense of humor. And in that way, it safely doesn't exclude beauty. It incorporates it into the dance of goodness, truth, and beauty. Objectification has no interest in those traits. It's a self-gratifying, often fantasy, gone to seed. And ridding the world of this objectification is not an easy task, perhaps impossible. But we can, each of us, start with a little bit of introspection. And the next time you find yourself confused about whether you're objectifying or you're admiring, ask yourself, do I see this person as a way of or for sexual gratification or economic exploitation 
or even just a commodity to win for Jesus? Or do I appreciate them beyond my own personal manipulative agenda? Do I see that person only as a potential buyer of my goods and services? Or do I see this person beyond what they can do for me? Do I only see that person as part of an inferior ethnic group? Or do I see that person as a fellow human created in the image of God as good, as true, and as beautiful? Do I see the image of God as a reflection of my white male, middle-class Western savior? Or as the God of all creation, a creation that that God calls very good? We can honestly only change what happens in our own brains and in our own hearts and how we choose to interact with ourselves and other people. And even in the church we can objectify by making people giving units. I cringe when I hear that language. Alan Jones, a now retired Episcopal priest from San Francisco, says in life, in ministry, in anything that we do, we either contemplate or we manipulate. And that manipulation always contains the seeds of objectification. And contemplation always invites this balancing dance of goodness and truth and beauty. This gaze that becomes one with a self-introspection of admiration. And I become one with. And when we see the law in this way, slant. The law becomes a description of what a pure heart looks like rather than a prescription about how we are to live. This brings a whole new meaning to what we just said this morning. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a relational circuit here. It's reciprocal. And so for all of us, I believe Jesus is saying, don't objectify God, don't objectify your neighbor, don't objectify yourself. You are beloved, you are good, you are true, you are beautiful. And he tells his apostles not how to think, but I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And in this way, Jesus does not abolish, but fulfills the law. No longer do the teachings on murder and adultery apply strictly to acts of murder and adultery. Instead, they become doorways into self-awareness as well as external behaviors of one's life. Anger, derision, slander, false generosity, litigiousness, arrogance, lust, temptation, alienation, divorce, and religious speech even. It's one thing to behave rightly it's another thing entirely for one's heart to be so orientated towards love that there is no necessity for law. Against such, there is no law. This image of God offers a life both deep and wide, where light shines into every nook and cranny of our lives, not to make us feel guilty, but to discover the goodness, truth, and beauty that is inherent in the fact that we are created in the divine image. This doesn't reduce the law to avoiding making or avoiding the big sins. And so Jesus gives the disciples and us a new way of life, not rejecting the tradition, 
but building upon it. It's a way of life that demands more and promises more. It's what Jesus says is a life that is abundant. Amen.